Jesus spent 40 days in the wilderness to pray and to rest before he began his public ministry. This year during Lent, join Pastor Hook to pray and rest as we learn about our calling to be a life-changing connection to Christ in our world. We are in episode nine of our study called Life-Changing Connection. And again, this study is to look at scriptural texts and things that are important as we consider coming out of the coronavirus and launching towards November 7th. So that's kind of what we are. We had an interesting, um, we had an interesting study yesterday looking at a thing called the Dunbar number. I don't know if you remember the Dunbar number, but it was a a gentleman named Robin Dunbar did research and noticed that based upon primate size or brain size, I guess you could say, was how many connections a person could have, meaningful connections. And he came up with this um, he, he uh, came up with this number that he called the Dunbar number, and I'll even just put it up here. The Dunbar number says that you can have five loved ones. Close, these are like really, really close connections. 15 good friends, 50 friends, 150 meaningful contacts, 500 acquaintances, and 1,500 people that you can recognize. And so this is, um, th- this is, in my opinion, very much closely aligned with how the church is aligned in the United States. And I mentioned this yesterday, but I just wanted to show you some of the statistics about churches in the United States. And this is called a congregation size distribution in the U.S. And let me just kind of go through this. The, the percentage of congregations in the United States that are 50 people or less, and this is worshiping on Sunday morning pre-COVID, all right, 50 or less, 43%. Between 51 and 100, that's 24%. So the churches that are less than 100 would be those two added together, which is 67%. So two-thirds of the congregations in the United States on a Sunday morning worship 100 or less. If you bump it up to 250, that's another 20%. So the number of churches that worship 250 or less are 64, 74, 84 say roughly 85%, 84%. This is pre-COVID, right? So if you are a church that is worshiping more than 250 on a Sunday morning, then you are, uh, you are are your congregation is in the 15% that worships more than 250. Uh, for 251 to 1,000, that's 10%. 1,000 is kind of what they're saying is the limit of what they call the megachurch. So if you're worshiping more than 1,000, on a Sunday morning, they call you a mega church, but I'm not entirely sure, and we may get into that. And then if that's 10%. So now we're up to 95%, 1,001 to 1,999 is 2%, and then greater than 2,000 is about a half a percent. I don't think this adds up to, as I look at it, it doesn't add up to 100%, but this is the numbers that I got off of a website called faithcommunitytodays.org. Um, so what does this mean? It means that as a church grows in size, or if the church would like to become effective at discipling more and more people, it will likely grow in size. 
And one has to be aware of the fact that as a church grows, the purpose of different meetings and different gatherings of the church changes. So if you're a church, let's say, that's 50 or less on Sunday morning, which is 43% of the churches in the United States, if you'll remember from Dunbar number, everybody in that church is your friend. Literally everybody. On, and if you worship 43% of the churches that get together on Sunday morning, the people that are there on Sunday morning, you could call them up and have breakfast with them, have lunch with them. If they're going through something, you would go to the hospital and visit them. I mean, these are these are things that a church of 50 is very, very close-knit and very tight, very, very friendly. Although, I, I must admit, I've been to some churches. Actually, I went to... Uh, can I do an aside here? How much time? Do I, yeah, I'll just... I, I did... I... There is a family member that is a pastor, a Lutheran pastor. And while I was in seminary, this family member asked if I would come preach at his dual congregation. He had two congregations, one that met earlier in the morning and one that met later in the morning. And they were close enough to where you could actually preach at one, get in your car, drive to the other one and preach at the second one. It was a split congregation. So I went and preached at these at this congregation. And I was just surprised when I got there that nobody talked to each other. It was so bizarre. They all came in, they sat down, and we had our worship service, and then they got up and they left, and they didn't talk to each other. (laughs) This is so strange. Because usually when you go to church on Sunday morning, it is um, a time for people to to gather together and have fellowship and food and fun and all that sort of thing. And it was just very somber. It was very interesting. Very interesting. I hadn't really experienced that before. Um, But the vast majority, I think, and there's probably a reason. This church was probably, I'm guessing, 100 to 150 years old and had probably been larger at one point, had declined to people who just were the hangers-on and they just went out of habit more than anything. It wasn't really for any other purpose than habit. They, they weren't there for friendship or fellowship or anything. It was just kind of habit. Um, but most churches gather together. So 50 is fresh. So that's why a lot of churches remain, you know, at that 50 level. Why 43% of churches never grow beyond 50 is because to, to grow bigger than that, that means you have to add more friends into your friendship group and it's hard to do because adding friends, a lot of people don't have a capacity to add more friends, and we may even get into that. There's a great book called Sticky Church that, that talks about this by Larry Osborne. Anyway, so, but what I really wanted to point out was that in the early church, I just wanted to talk about how the early church met and what they did. And if you'll remember, we started with uh, Acts 2, beginning at verse 42. I'll just, I'll just read it to you again. This is Acts 2.42. They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to fellowship to the breaking of bread and to prayer. Everyone was filled with awe at the many wonders and signs performed by the apostles. All the believers were together and had everything in common. They sold property and possessions to give to anyone who had need. Every day they continued to meet together in the temple courts. They broke bread in their homes and ate together with glad and sincere hearts, praising God and enjoying the favor of all the people. And the Lord added to their number daily those that were being saved. So 
obviously, the early church came together and they met in people's homes. They met in the temple courts. They met for apostles teaching, fellowship, breaking a bread, prayer, and then they pooled their resources to love the community around them. And this was great until the church started to grow. And then they had to figure it out. Well, that's kind of what I want to talk about today is like, how did that go from from this time to when the church like today? Uh, well, maybe not till today, <laughs> maybe just for the next 300 years of the church. Let's just talk about that time frame because what's interesting is is our vision of church is a building. And that's not necessarily what the early church thought of as church. The early church thought of as a church as a group of people that were meeting in a building. The church were a group of people, the ecclesia, the ek from, kaleo, called out. The, to kaleo means to call. So ekkaleia means to call out or the called out ones. And ecclesia is the early Greek word for church, ecclesia. And it was just basically those that had been kind of called out basically to love and serve the world around them. That's what they were called out for because that's what Jesus said. So how did they do that? How did the early church meet? And just I want to briefly talk about that. And the, the really the first mention of this is in Acts 1. Even before Acts 2, it's Acts 1. Just listen to this passage. Then the apostles, this is after the ascension of Jesus. Then the apostles returned to Jerusalem from the hill called Mount of Olives, a Sabbath day walk from the city. When they arrived, they went upstairs to the room where they were staying. This is probably the upper room where maybe they had the Lord's Supper. Those present were Peter, John, James, and Andrew, Philip and Thomas, Bartholomew and Matthew, James the son of Alphaeus, Simon the zealot, and Judas the son of James. They all joined together constantly in prayer along with the women and Mary, the mother of Jesus, and with his brothers. So obviously there's a lot of people here. It's not just the 12 apostles. There's women that were in part of this group. There was Mary, and then there were brothers of Jesus. And probably likely one of those would have been James, the brother of Jesus, who wrote the book of James and was the leader of the early church in Jerusalem. So he was there with Jesus. He was definitely there with this group of people. He was definitely there a part of this camaraderie of people that met in a place where they went into the upper room. And I, I think they went into, they joined constantly in prayer. They arrived, they went into the upstairs to the room where they were staying so this early church, this very, very first church, kind of came together and they went, a lot of people believe the same room, upper room where Jesus had the Last Supper, could have been, may not have been, it doesn't say for sure. But if you go to Jerusalem, and if any of you ever get the opportunity to go to Jerusalem, I'd love for you to go here and just take a couple pictures. There's about 50 places in Jerusalem I would like some of you to take pictures of. Uh, if you ever get a chance to go to Jerusalem, I would see me before you go and I will give you a list of all the pictures. Um, so this is, uh, let me just show you, this is the upper room. This is where they're saying that the upper room was where Jesus had the Last Supper. And if you'll notice, it's huge because in Jerusalem architecture at the time, you you lived 
in maybe one or two floors, but then you had the upper, upper floor where you might be open and have people gathering together. Now, why would it be in the upper floor? Because in the lower floors, you need the pillars to support the upper floor. But the upper floor, the pillars don't have to be spaced as closely together and they don't have to hold up you know, much of a roof. So if you wanted to have a large gathering of people, you would put it on the upper floor because that way you could have that expanse with fewer and fewer pillars. I know that sounds kind of strange for us today, but it really was the architecture of that time. And so when Jesus was in the upper room, now this picture that I showed you, and the picture is of a large room with lots of pillars in it, but but the picture is not the, the actual room of Jesus. The room of Jesus would have been, well, the, the building was destroyed two or three different times from different conquests. So this has been rebuilt several times. So this isn't exactly, it's the location, but it's not exactly the room as it looked like. But if if I can describe what it was, basically you'd have living quarters, living quarters, and then, then the upper room was a larger room where people could gather together. And this is where the disciples and Mary and other people following Jesus gathered together at the time uh, and I'm going to show, for those of you who can watch, I'm showing you a picture of kind of an upper room here. This is the biblical upper room uh, that's supposed to be the same spot. And it's just it just shows windows in an upper room of a large building, basically what it is. But the, but the, the upper room is where they would have gone. So the early church didn't really have a church building. The early congregation, I should say, the early church didn't have a church building because, first of all, they were not allowed to have an early church, a church building. It was completely an outsider religion, so they weren't even allowed to build anything. So how did the church grow so tremendously in the early part of, you know, right after Jesus? Well, um, they did it by going to house churches and what do I mean by a house church? A house church was basically a home, most likely of a wealthy individual. And this wealthy individual would entertain just like we entertain. And so they would have typically a room in their house where they could entertain. And that was a great location for people to gather together for prayer and for fellowship and for teaching and for Bible. I mean, all this stuff that the early church did. Remember the apostles teaching, fellowship, breaking bread and prayer. This was all done most likely in a house church. And, and the house church was basically the home of probably someone who was well-to-do. And we could even look at some of these house churches because they're in the Bible all over. It's funny when you think about a house churches and you start reading the the Bible with house churches in mind, it just comes alive. Um, this one is from Acts two, uh, Acts 12. When this had dawned on him, he went, this is Peter who had just been sprung from prison. When this had dawned on him, he went to the house of Mary, the mother of John, also called Mark, where many people had gathered and were praying. Peter knocked at the outer entrance and a servant named Rhoda came and answered the door. So we can see here that this house of Mary, the mother of John, where it had a large gathering of people, had an outer entrance and also had a servant named Rhoda who came and answered the door. So they were meeting. When Peter came out of prison, there was a group of believers in this house, the house of Mary, who's the mother of John. Obviously well-to-do, she had a servant. Or maybe the house of Cornelius. 
The next day, Peter started out with them, and some of the believers from Joppa went along. The following day, he arrived in Caesarea. Cornelius was expecting them and had called together his relatives and close friends. As Peter entered the house, Cornelius met him and fell at his feet in reverence. But Peter made him get up. Stand up, he said. I'm only a man myself. And while talking with him, Peter went inside and found a large gathering of people. So here again, we have the house of Cornelius. And and we know that there was a house of Cornelius here in Caesarea. And that's where the church started. It was at somebody's house. And they gathered together in a large room. And this is where they gathered together. Or maybe the house of Lydia. This one is fascinating. On the Sabbath, we, this is Paul and others, went outside the city gate to the river where we expected to find a place of prayer. So this is Paul and Luke, and they're together. They're trying to find a place of prayer. So they sat down and began to speak to a woman who had got, to the women who had gathered there. And one of those listening was a woman from the city of Thyatira named Lydia, a dealer in purple cloth. She was a worshiper of God. So she was basically a Jewish person who was trying to find the truth. And so she had gone to this place of prayer and she was worshiping God. The Lord opened her heart to respond to Paul's message. And when she and the members of her household were baptized, she invited us to her home. If you consider me a believer in the Lord, she said, come and stay at my house. And she persuaded us. So here we have this great image of Lydia who sold purple cloth. And when the church began in uh, here. Uh, this is in Thyatira, and there was a church in Thyatira. They started here at Lydia's house. They, Paul went out to the river to find a place to pray. He met this woman of means. Obviously, she's a seller of purple cloth. So her and her whole house are baptized, and they come and they stay at her house, and that's where the church started in Thyatira. Or the house of Titius Justice in Corinth. So Paul left the synagogue. This is uh, in verse uh, 7. I'm not sure which chapter this is. Then Paul left the synagogue and went next door to the house of Titius, Justice, a worshiper of God. Crispus, the synagogue leader, and his entire household believed in the Lord. And many of the Corinthians who heard Paul believed and were baptized. So this is, this is Paul in Corinth. And he probably went to the synagogue and started teaching. And then Crispus, who's the synagogue leader, and Titius, who lives right next door to the synagogue, they all get together. And now here they probably didn't meet at at Titius's house or Justice's house, although he did go next door. But they probably were allowed, because this was a convert, they were probably allowed to use the synagogue for a gathering place. Um, the house of Aquila and Prisca. This is uh, Priscilla. Let's see. This is uh, 1 Corinthians 16, beginning at verse 19. The churches in the province of Asia send you greetings. Aquila and Priscilla greet you warmly in the Lord, and so does the church that meets at their house. All the brothers and sisters here send you greetings. Greet one another with the holy kiss. So we can see that here Paul calls it the church that's meeting at the house of Aquila and Priscilla. So they were obviously people of means. They have a beautiful home and they opened up one of their rooms and and allowed the church to meet there. This is how the early church grew. They didn't have large gatherings. They weren't allowed to have large gatherings because, because they didn't have a place to do large gatherings. 
If they wanted to teach as Jesus did, they would have to go find a hill and teach like Jesus did or Paul did on Mars Hill to go out and make you know presentation where a large number of people could hear. But the vast majority of people in the early church grew through house churches. Now, house churches are great, but house churches run into a problem. And the problem that they run into, and it's the same problem that we all run into, is that as a church grows, in order for it to grow, it has to split. Because the, the room or the building or whatever, wherever the church is meeting, if it's growing, at some point that growth will outlive the size of that building. And so they have to split. And that is always hard. I don't care if it's a small group or a large congregation or anything. Anytime a church is going to, anytime a church wants to split, grow, they have to split. You have to, you, this family, this familiness that a church has basically will be radically split into two. If you think about, if you think about, I think about those conjoined twins that were conjoined at the hip, right? And um, it's not healthy for them to stay conjoined, so they have to split. And it's just, so they go in, the doctor goes and surgically splits these conjoined twins. And it's, it's horrible. It's terrible because they're no longer conjoined but if a church wants to grow at some point they have to split and this has happened many times every time i was involved in a small group the congregation that we were a part of would come up to us and say hey listen your small group's getting too big you have to split and logically i know that's true but my heart just always broke because i didn't want to split because i knew that some of the people will go in one group and some of the people will go in another group and i wouldn't see them Every Friday night, I think, you know, the one in Phoenix we met on Friday night, I uh, wouldn't see them anymore. And, and that's just hard because you invest time and life into these people. And I've thought a lot about how do you split a small group? And because they do get so close. I don't know if you've ever been part of a small group that meets together every week for years. You, you develop some relationships that are extremely strong, relationships that last forever, really do last forever. But on the flip side, and this is probably my personality, you will have people in the small group like me that understand that it's time for the group to split. And yes, we need to do this. It's painful and it's horrible, but it's got to be done if the, if the group is going to grow. And I, as I've thought about it, instead of you know, develop, splitting the group 50-50, maybe you take, you know, one leader and one other person and they go off and, and they create another small group because there are people that love the challenge of starting new, starting new things. I, I happen to have that personality. So in retrospect, maybe it's better to just take, you know, one or two people split it off of the small group and they start their own small group. Maybe that's the way. I don't know if there's a great way to do it. Um, I know that uh, one of the churches, that one of the large churches in our in our community that has um, that really has a major emphasis in small groups. They start small groups basically when new people show up in their church door. They kind of hold on to them and they say, "Okay, now you're a small group. Get together and meet." And the, the great thing about that is it's intergenerational and it's just you know everybody's new and fresh, and so they're excited to get into a small group and so they're willing to grow together. The downside is is that they may not you know a lot of times. When you're in a small group, you like to be in a small group with people who are going through the same life experiences that you are. 
and that might include parenting. So for me and the small group I was in in Phoenix and actually the one in Denver, small groups, they, we were all revolved around the same condition that we were, we were, our first small group was called Young Marrieds. We had, none of us had kids. We were just Young Marrieds. We were in our 20s. And then we started having kids, kids and so we called ourselves Young Marrieds with Kids. And then we moved from Friday night to Wednesday night because they wanted all the small groups in our congregation to meet on Wednesday night. So we did that and we grew some more and then we grew so big that we had to split. And that was difficult and painful. And then right after that, uh, I my job took me to Denver where we got involved in another small group. So um, it isn't change, change is always inevitable change, because people move. And particularly in today's society, people move a whole lot more than, than we ever did. And so truly a church, if a church is gonna be effective, you have to understand that when people move into your community, and they, and they show up at your door because they're looking for a church, they're probably not just looking for a place to gather, you know, to learn. They're probably looking for a community. They're probably looking for a place where they can get connected rather quickly. And so a, an effective church um, would be one that if someone shows up at your door, that you are friendly outgoing and understand that they are probably looking for a group of people to connect with rather quickly that, that look like them. And, and the most important thing that a church can do is somehow get them connected with a group of people so that they, so that they feel like th that they've met some people, that they, that they have some connections. And people who move into a town have a lot of capacity for a lot of connections. People who have been worshiping at a church for a long, at a congregation for a long time, may have maxed out their connections. And so somehow you have to figure out a way to create the opportunity for those connections to happen. Um, all right, I, I have a whole bunch more stuff to talk about that, but I guess we're probably gonna have to wait until uh, tomorrow to do that. So um, thanks for joining me today and let's close in prayer. Dear God, Help us to be open to bringing more people into your kingdom and loving more people. In Jesus' name, amen.